Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good morning, my name is Stephen Adams. I'm Senior Director at GC here in London. We're going to spend the next half an hour picking apart the big political event of yesterday, which was, of course, the UK's budget, um, not uh, Rishi Sunak's first full budget, but uh, certainly the first big, or in many respects, um, his first big test uh, with the red box um, in the sense that, although he's done a lot over the last year and, of course, was central in many respects to the design and the um, the presentation of the UK government's COVID-19 response. This is the budget when some of the chickens uh, of that response, of course, started to come home to roost. And we're going to spend this call thinking about, talking about uh, what he's announced, what it tells us about the way he and the Treasury and this government are thinking about both the short and the long-term implications uh, of COVID-19. And I'm joined by Alex Dawson, our practice lead for Whitehall and Westminster, and Rebecca Park, our practice lead for financial services, who between them have many, many years of experience of watching and interpreting Westminster. Um, Alex, if I can start with you, uh, the, the message, I guess, in the morning papers this morning in the UK is that this was a budget whose core message was uh, brace yourself for tax rises, uh, the return of an element of fiscal austerity uh, to the Treasury Party's thinking, uh, sorry, the Conservative Party's thinking. I, I, is that right? Uh, well, I think that's that, that's clearly a part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Um, I think kind of probably the, the best way of telling the story about what the budget is doing is to actually look at table one in the red book of the budget, um, which focuses on the cost of the policy decisions in the budget over the budget period, over the next five years. So it costs six billion the budget this year, rather than raising any money. It costs 59 billion next year. The year after that, it's eight billion. And then in 23, 24 onwards for the next three years, it starts to raise money, which is when the tax rises really come into effect. And what the chancellors try to do is effectively ensure that there is liquidity in the economy via COVID support, uh, via both COVID support schemes, and then also the super deduction tax policy, which is 130% relief on capital investment in plant and machinery, which I think the IFS have, uh, or the Resolution Foundation have claimed is justified in being the biggest tax cut in British history, apparently. Um, effectively, that, that funds the next two, three years of liquidity support to kind of get the economy back up on its feet, hopefully kind of increase investment, increase growth, boost growth, before then you have uh, the tax cuts coming in. Now, this is Beth, this kind of predicated on a big question about COVID and a big statement and claim about COVID, which is that the uh, UK's vaccine program is going to continue to be successful, is going to continue to um, protect people against uh, the threat of new variants, the threat of new lockdowns. Um, but what it does do is it glosses over some of the kind of longer term challenges that the economy is going to face and that the country is going to face in terms of public spending uh, and which Boris Johnson was elected on in 2019. So I think what we're going to start to see is the tension between um, getting the UK economy off COVID life support, as it were, and into a place where actually you can raise enough money to increase spending 
uh, in a substantial way on public services while protecting the rest of the economy from some of these planned tax rises that are coming down the tracks. Stephen, I think you're Rebecca, on. Rebecca, if I can turn to you, I mean, from your perspective, what, what was in the, the budget to spur growth? Um, so I think in terms of looking at the budget to spur growth, so it says this is largely an attempt to try and bring parts of the economy off life support, but I'm not entirely sure that it, it fundamentally achieves that. In many respects, you start to see a continuation of, of some of the policies and proposals we saw from last year. Um, around COVID recovery and support um, in terms of business support, but also to me, it looks like the Chancellor is still trying to um, attach some of his hopes to the UK housing market again. Um, and so what we saw in terms of housing policy was an extension of the, the stamp duty land tax um, exemptions. So again, trying to fuel um, house buying and the associated costs and benefits that come from that from the exchequer's perspective. But also um, we saw them moving back to what was originally a manifesto commitment for the Conservative Party around um, help for um, first time buyers trying to go on the housing ladder with small deposits and the um, commitment to a 95% um, low um, LTV mortgage policy that's really just a, a reheat of the old 2013 policy. Um, it pretty much um, is exactly the same form as the original help to buy guarantee. Now, what we didn't see in the housing space, though, was um, a policy that the Prime Minister announced last autumn on um, a long-term fixed interest rate product for first-time buyers. Um, that's something that's been causing the Treasury quite a few headaches over recent months in terms of how to actually fund and finance that. And we saw sort of absolute silence on that yesterday. And again, we saw no further detail on the government's um, cladding remediation issues. So this is the, the fund and financing that's needed to, to pay for the remediation of low-rise buildings. That's expected to be a, a government-backed guarantee fund with some form of government bond to, to support the lending, but um, nothing on that yesterday. And even when the Chancellor was pressured on it in the um, press conference last night, again, he skirted the issue. So I think it's sort of on housing, we saw a little bit, but I think, you know, there's frankly more to come and probably more detail that will need to come forward later this year. On the broader bank um, business taxation side, the corporation tax rise is obviously significant, earmarked and set out as a roadmap for 2023. Um, and um, it's, Astonishing, really, to think where we've come from on the on the tax debate over the last decade, from George Osborne's constant reduction to get to the current rate of corporation tax to an over-the-night announcement that it's going up by 6%. And I think that's quite an astonishing movement in the political landscape as to sort of how we've got there. Now, coupled with that, we saw an announcement um, on the bank surcharge. To be honest, that doesn't look significant in terms of what's being proposed. That was to um, look at the additional 8% that the banks pay in the UK on top of corporation tax. So um, what's clear is it's going to be consulted on the autumn, but probably what they're looking at much more is, is sort of keeping some degree of surcharge around 2%, just sitting on top of the existing increased rate of corporation tax rather than anything more significant. And I think that starts to play towards some of the government's signaling that we saw yesterday, an attempt to try and show that we're encouraging international investment. And we saw that with the listings review that came out before the budget, but there's not necessarily a significant amount in there that really backs up some of the rhetoric that we're seeing around that. Um, I think the only exception there is the super deduction tax, as Alex said, which is really a significant government commitment. It's costed at 25 billion. Um, that is quite an interesting and creative policy of the likes businesses and groups have been calling for for a long time. Um, but that probably seems like the boldest element in terms of the growth strategy. And also presumably to some extent necessary, given the rise in corporation tax, because you don't want businesses 
delaying investment for two years to set against the higher corporation tax rate. I mean, you, um, you, you make the point, of course, that we, we have had this big shift in the landscape, the political landscape on corporation tax in the last, well, we've had a number of oscillations on it in, in, in the last decade or so. Um, if we compare yesterday to the messaging of the Osborne chancellorship, the totemic importance that was invested in reducing corporation tax. I mean, what do, what do you think has shifted in the political landscape that makes it plausible, feasible, maybe even desirable for a chancellor to want to raise corporation tax? And how's it going down with, with business? So I think there are three things that have really shifted that sort of made yesterday possible. One, in the most immediate sense, is the COVID support that was provided to the business sector last year. You know, we saw 70 billion in lending to the economy backed by a government guarantee, coupled with the furlough package. And I think that really has enabled the government to begin a new political narrative, which is we bailed you out and supported you. And the right return for that is some degree of commitment from businesses in funding that. And coupled with that, a real attempt to position the corporation tax as profits tax, and therefore only paid by those corporates that are doing well and can afford to do so. I think the second element is really a debate that's probably been going on behind the scenes within Treasury over a number of years, which is um, the riposte to the Osborne view that a reduction in corporation tax could increase tax receipts. And there is real scepticism within, within the Treasury, within those working on these policies, that that is true and has come to fruition. And I think that is starting to set the view of the new norm, which is actually maybe the reduction didn't bring forward some of the benefits to the Exchequer that had been claimed. And then I think the third element is the international landscape. With the Biden presidency and the US starting to look again at tax rates, the competitiveness of the UK rate starts to play a different debate in different parts of the conversation. And I think to some degree, the Chancellor is banking on other rates increasing elsewhere so that the UK still remains competitive. Yeah. And I mean, as it's occasionally pointed out, in fact, being being at the bottom of the league table or rather the top, sorry, in terms of the lower rate can, can, in fact, of course, incentivize to some extent investment in slightly higher rate jurisdictions where you can write it off against the higher rates. So this is clearly something sort of in, interesting that's moving in terms of the, the politics around corporation tax. Um, Alex, you made the point that, um, I mean, one of the things that we've been saying and others have been saying, of course, for the last year is that. Um, we talk a lot about liquidity bridges in terms of COVID support in the sense that the government's policy since April, not just in the UK, but the governments around the world, their, their, their strategy has been to keep households liquid, to keep businesses liquid, to keep them afloat, to provide essentially a form of bridge financing. Um, the, the point about liquidity bridge, of course, is that generally when you build a bridge, you know where the other side of the river is. Otherwise, you're building a wharf. Um, the government is clearly hoping that by setting the end date of September, they have identified the other side of the river. That's a calculation in very large part about the UK's vaccine rollout strategy and the efficacy of uh, that rollout strategy. Um, the UK is clearly performing relatively well in terms of vaccine rollout, but there are still some big questions about how you get the UK to herd immunity, whether that's going to mean having to vaccinate children, for example. I mean, to what extent do you did you read the re some of those harder realities in the budget yesterday? And to what extent is 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 COVID and and the the, the end of the current the definitive end of the current uh, period of restrictions, the sort of elephant in the room in this budget? Um, I think that uh, I think you've got a Treasury which has sort of learned its lesson from last year which is that trying to pull the drawbridge up too early just ends up with greater costs loading onto the exchequer. 
um, the diminution of uh, the Exchequer's standing within Whitehall, and it starts to lose the arguments more um, uh, more consistently across uh, Westminster. Uh, I think they, I mean, the, the kind of the consensus in Whitehall is that the data not dates policy that the Prime Minister is pursuing is going to lead actually to a, a reopening that is possibly slightly slower than uh, the science might suggest because of the review periods that you have uh, with a kind of a four week trial period for new measures followed by a week of review. Um, and, but that speaks to a genuine and a general optimism about uh, how the UK has this uh, has this licked and that the end of the, the, the other kind of bank of the river to kind of continue your metaphor is in sight and they can almost reach it and touch it. Um, they also think that probably the Kent variant is, is the sort of the most problematic variant that you can find and they're reassured by the news from the life sciences industry uh, that uh, updates to the vaccination uh, to kind of account for a new variant would be able to kind of come in quickly uh, and would be able to be rolled out effectively. Now what it doesn't, um, I think what the budget didn't address yesterday uh, was actually sort of what ongoing kind of preventative spending might be required in order to make sure that you didn't have to sort of turn on further liquidity spending. So look, they're prepared for a political battle over, um, over ending furlough, they're prepared for a political battle over ending the stamp duty land tax uh, holiday. Again, both of these things are due to be phased out. Um, but what they are not necessarily prepared for is the ongoing costs of vaccination programs uh, where they probably got a slightly kind of uh, better certainty over them working, over how test and trace works in future. And then also what the ongoing hit is really going to be in terms of um, changed output levels uh, for the economy as a whole. And that clearly relates to things like how, my, how many people go back into the office, how much of that old economic activity is replicated in the new post-pandemic world uh, and therefore that's just kind of quite a big area of uncertainty which I think leads to them um, which I think has led to the Treasury being slightly coy about what this more broadly means for future departmental spending uh, both on um, pandemic mitigation but also on the wider suite of government spending that uh, as I said earlier, Boris Johnson promised at the 2019 election. Now, the thing is, Boris Johnson and, and a lot of this, a lot of the thinking about tax, frankly, and fiscal consolidation has been guided by the fact that the Tories don't think that you can actually um, squeeze much more out of public spending. Cuts aren't going to be particularly tolerable. Therefore, you have to raise taxes. But the, the sheer cost of the pandemic and the necessity to get to kind of maintain debt at about 100% of GDP get back to a current spending structural sort of balance by the end of the budget period, really does suggest that it's departmental spending is still going to be squeezed. Um, it's gonna be squeezed both in sort of absolute terms, but then also in terms of the um, proportion of money that can go on it as against things like test and trace, things like vaccination programs. Um, and, and I think that's gonna be sort of something that we're gonna see develop over the next year especially as you get conservative backbenchers start to say, well, it's very important we spend more on social care. It's very important we spend more on making sure that um, 
educational outcomes are kind of brought back to pre-pandemic levels uh, alongside all the other range of policies that the government was unable to really touch or deal with. I mean, we might come on to it later, but the fact that these are the only two taxes that the government can raise um, points to some really difficult challenges when you think about uh, levelling up and net zero, which are the two big discretionary policy commitments yeah. that the Prime Minister has made. But I mean, let's, we'll come on to net zero and levelling up in a second. But as you say, presumably part of the part of the issue here is in fact not so much that the strategy is necessarily to pay down debt, but it's anxiety about the cost of debt service. And in the in, in a context in which a very, very small rate rise potentially on an extremely large body of debt service starts to look a problem even for existing levels of say the education budget or the police budget which have become politically even more important for the reasons you've been saying because they're regarded as being key parts of the government's strategy with respect to its large new group of um you know of red wall red wall voters and of course something like the police budget is is a core and a, a perennial conservative issue anyway um but i mean just in terms of the um is there anything else in the in the kind of OBR's outlook that sort of struck you as important here? Clearly, there's a there, there's a me, there's a message in the OBR outlook about pent up demand. That's potentially a good thing, but there's also a slightly more problematic story about the hit to long term output and the the scarring of the the uh, the, the closures of the last year. I think sort of one of the most interesting unremarked things about yesterday was that the uh, long term output hit. Uh, that the OBR has forecast for uh, exiting the EU's regulatory orbit comes in at 4%, which is uh, about 33% um, bigger than uh, the output hit from the pandemic. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's obviously going to have to be a job of work done for um, the government as a whole, but also for British industry, to work out how it does secure growth and how it uses regulatory autonomy post-Brexit to make up some of those losses. And I think what was striking about the budget yesterday was that we didn't really get a great deal of detail on what the Chancellor thought about uh, how you use regulatory autonomy, how you do things differently um, in terms of regulation to achieve growth. I mean, he spoke about free ports and there are a package of tax cuts that um, the Chancellor would argue was kind of uh, impossible to do uh, under the EU's rules. Um, but, but again, I think it's kind of, you know, the, the, the academic consensus on Freeports is um, fairly pessimistic about their ability to drive substantial growth across nations. It, it might do a better job of regenerating parts of the country as Canary Wharf did, for instance, in the 80s. Um, but it's unclear as to whether it will genuinely sort of unlock uh, those extra kind of um, points of GDP. Uh, and clearly, I mean, this is an area of work that we've been kind of focusing on a great deal at Global Council in the last few months. There are a suite of things that the, Prime, uh, that the Chancellor didn't touch yesterday where you'd suspect there might be benefits in future. But again, it requires sensitive handling of the politics when it comes to issues such as gene editing, for instance, um, which is you know one of a number of issues that the, the government could take to try and boost productivity. Uh, and I think that reflects a um, 
the Treasury's sensitivity about the difficult politics of doing some of the other things in the budget, uh, such as tax rises on income tax and corporation tax. Um, you know, as much as their desire to kind of actually do these things in the first place. Mm. Yes, I mean, as you say, for the first proper post-European membership, EU membership budget, beyond the enterprise zones, free zone, not not very much that suggested we're yet seeing the deployment of a, of a strategy based around doing things differently. But Becca, if I can come back to you, so, you know, if we actually focus on the things that are there rather than the things that aren't, um, and, and maybe some of the things that are there that are directly relevant to your FS clients, um, I mean, what what stood out for you? Um, so I think, um, first of all, on doing things differently, one of, the, one of the most obvious examples of a literal retail offer that we saw in the budget yesterday, following the departure from the EU, was the rising contact list up to £100. I mean, that is something the, the government's chosen to do uh, because of the... Um, uh, departure from the payment service director obligations but I think it, it was it's an obvious example of something that was politically deliverable saleable and, and would resonate with the public particularly uh, during Covid but more seriously the the detail coming forward on, on what is there from a financial services perspective and more generally came out sort of around the budget in the listings review and the Khalifa review and these are two reports delivered um sort of post-Brexit by the Chancellor to really start looking at the competitiveness of the UK as a centre for fintech investment, financial services investment, and a way to enhance and encourage innovation in the UK. Now, what both reports are, are sort of initial deployment of ideas into those debates, and it's not clear how much of what's been proposed is going to be delivered. So the only firm commitment made by the Treasury yesterday was that the Chancellor is now going to deliver a one-year competitiveness update to Parliament. But um, the detail in the listings review around dual um, listing and a sort of very detailed set of proposals for reform of the listing rules require FCA input and FCA involvement. And we've already seen the regulator saying they're going to come out in the summer with a consultation and then they will implement the, the necessary and appropriate measures by the end of the year. And I think that's going to be a recurring theme in terms of how we see the government responding to some of these big set piece events. There will be a lot of rhetoric and detail and early thinking at, at the start, and we'll start to see some of that being dropped along the way and watered down as it goes through the regulators to determine what can be implemented. But also what we've seen with both of those reviews is, although they've been packaged up as part of the post-Brexit landscape, much of the content in there isn't actually about divergence. Then you yeah, exactly. They don't, they, in neither case do they really require exit from the EU for implementation. Yeah, exactly. With one exception, which is the review of the prospectus regulations, yeah. which was proposed in yesterday's listing review. Um, they really were, frankly, a continuation of debates that have been happening for a number of years between the industry and government and very little new or substantive um, came forward. So and I think we've got to see how this links into the wider agenda. So so much of what came forward is going to be linked to the regulatory framework review that the government's announced and which is ongoing and also the overseas business review and I think this is one of the challenges that Treasury is facing. There isn't necessarily much to change from a divergence perspective in financial services or the city more broadly. Much of what's coming forward is a tension between the government's rhetoric and direction and the appetite of the regulators to act and I think that divergence between the very strong statement from the Chancellor about his commitment to the industry and the city and then the sort of reserve of Andrew Bailey and Sam Woods at the Bank of England to sort of take a more measured and moderate approach. Unless something changes there, many of the big ideas are going to struggle to get forward or drive the changes that people are keen to see. Mm, yeah. So um, a, a little bit of post-Brexit optics. Um, but Alex, as you say, um, 
on the big government agenda of leveling up, uh, we obviously we have a new treasury branch office uh, in uh, in Teesside in, in Darlington. Um, on the net zero side, um, we have I mean, I suppose you could you could classify uh, the uh, the investment deductions, the super deductions, um, as broadly targeting those kinds of transformative investments uh, on the net, net zero side. Um, but it's not a budget that puts either of those big themes front and center, unless either of you disagree with me on that. I mean, Becca, how how, how do you think that um, we should interpret that? Uh, is it just because there were bigger fish to fry in terms of COVID-19 in this budget? And what does it mean for those two big agendas going forward? And what does it mean for engagement with the government on those two big issues going forward? So they, um, the net zero agenda and levelling up will continue to be political narratives that are very important to this government. And I think the, the lack of development or announcement or commitment yesterday sort of brings forward the two challenges for the government in this space. One is money. You know, the spending envelope is incredibly limited and they are having to act within um, a post-COVID landscape and um, economic challenges. And the second is they don't yet know how to take this agenda forward in a politically salient manner that is going to work for their northern seats and their more traditional voting base. And I think to some degree that really does sort of hamstring the government in how they progress this, because as much as... But just say a bit more about what you mean by that. So as much as climate change is um, clearly driving forward much of the agenda and there is an appetite from younger voters to see government action on it, actually, when you get past the top line questions and ask people what they're willing to commit to, the impact on their household spending, on their approach to living, there's very little appetite for change. People don't want to retrofit their homes. They don't want to be forced into an electric car early and they don't want to have to sort of deal with some of the sort of literally bottom line consequences on their household income. And the government hasn't yet figured out how to kind of square that problem off. And so by continuing to talk about it, but not bring forward significant action, they're sort of trying to straddle that, that difficult political implication for them. But I think that raises an interesting sort of opportunity for business to engage with government, because on the one hand, they are looking for proposals and ideas that aren't necessarily expensive to deliver, but also they need support with transitions. So much of this conversation for government is actually about transitions. So not necessarily turning off the taps for brown investment or sort of um, sort of those are traditional sort of past investments in, in sort of areas, but actually thinking about how the government can be supported in transitioning the housing stock or regional and local investments. And I think for corporates, that's where the opportunity for a conversation really lies, both in how you are reforming your own workforce and your own activities, and the opportunities that you're seeing coming forward from that innovation and development, but also where you can work alongside government on product investment and um, sort of support there, whether it's new finance packages or looking at different ways to support the transition. And I think for businesses looking at how to engage in that agenda, that can be really sort of be part of the solution and opening up those conversations mm. rather than necessarily looking for those big set piece commitments about the deadlines changing for when they're going to bring forward certain elements of change. You yeah. also have a government that has had a lot on its plate over the last few years with the Brexit negotiations with COVID and then with the immediate rush of winning the majority and all of this that meant that there was kind of limited bandwidth uh, within government because a lot of those decisions were just blocked up behind COVID and Brexit. And now COVID is kind of hopefully fingers crossed sort of shifting out the way ever so slightly. The Brexit debate has really you know, the air has come out of it in Westminster, even though clearly it's still a very material impact for a lot of businesses and for parts of the government. 
but it does now mean that the, the Treasury, the central government departments, the business department, all has a little bit more bandwidth to consider issues in the round. And you're starting to see that in terms of what Becca spoke about uh, in that, you know, you will see a lot of announcements which are a big bit of headline rhetoric, followed up pretty quickly actually by quite wide ranging reviews. We're seeing that already with the fundamental review of business rates and we're due to see a, uh, we're due to see another kind of set of, um, set of reviews and consultations launched around the questions coming out from that on the 23rd of March, uh, which will be a fantastic opportunity for businesses to engage on these points and shape their engagement around what the government wants to do and how they can be helped to do that by business. So I think there's actually kind of a lot more movement and a lot more dynamism than there probably was in the last three, four, five years of relationship between government and business. The challenge is trying to make good uh, on this window while it exists and before it closes down again for the run into the what's likely to be the 2024 general election. Yeah, I mean, like you both say, this feels like in some ways a, a transitional budget, a, a budget between um, the, the, the year of COVID and whatever comes after it, a transitional budget in terms of resetting some pretty big conservative assumptions about how to manage tax and spend. Um, exit question to both of you, short and sharp. Um, the end of this parliament, what, we, what will we remember about this budget? Becca? Um, that it brought forward a long-term rising corporation tax. Alex? Uh, a whacking great rise in corp tax, but um, we may well look back on it as the time that the Chancellor gambled on uh, increases in income tax, which he was then able to skewer in the budget just before the 2024 election. Thus cementing his journey to number 10. Um, Alex, uh, Becca, as always, thank you very much. Um, you can, of course, contact Alex and Becca. You have their contact details. If you don't, uh, you can find them on the uh, the GC website. website. Um, my name is Stephen Adams. Thanks very much indeed to everyone for joining this morning and uh, we'll see you all soon. Stay safe. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>